Welcome, everyone. This is Christy Balsell speaking, and it is Friday, October 3rd, 2014, and joining us today to talk about psychiatric disorders in mitochondrial diseases, and the flip side of that, mitochondrial dysregulation and psychiatric disorders, is Dr. Andrew Nirenberg, who is the director of the Bipolar Clinic and Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Nirenberg. Thank you. Before we get started, I just wanted to make a couple comments. The slides for this presentation, if you're listening online, are available if you would look on mitoaction.org and search for the psychiatric disorders in mitochondrial diseases. You'll find those slides to follow along today. And as well, I wanted to make the point that this is a very important topic. Many times the physical symptoms of mitochondrial disorders are addressed, but we don't often really talk about in our community what it means to have altered brain energy metabolism. So having had the opportunity to work with Dr. Nirenberg over the last year at some of our presentations for primary care physicians around the country and also as part of our medical advisory board, I found it really fascinating to think about how the brain truly is a very energy-hungry organ, just like the muscles. And for patients with mitochondrial disease, it certainly makes a lot of sense that any kind of altered metabolism is going to have an impact on the altered brain energy metabolism and, and what that means and um, potentially what, what we can do about it that would be therapeutic. We're very lucky to have Dr. Nirenberg joining us today because not only is he uh, very well qualified academically in his um, position at Harvard Medical School and so forth, but he also is uh, very interesting in his uh, innovative and creative approach to how mitochondrial dysfunction plays a role in these psychiatric disorders. And so we're in for a real treat today to learn more about that. So Dr. Nirenberg, um, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome. Thank you, Christy, and, and thanks for the kind introduction. It really has been a, a, a great adventure to be working with MitoAction and to try to be helpful as I can. Uh, for for those of you on on the line and uh, and uh, looking at the at the slides, uh, don't despair that that it says uh, that the first slide is one out of eighty. I will be skipping through many of the slides in part because they're they're really a little too technical and, and won't help me that much. So I'll tell you when to skip and, and when not to skip. But one of the things that Christy said that was essential is that the brain is hungry. And that the if you look at uh, the next slide, um, this is what I'm going to try to cover that will go over how hungry the brain is and, and what happens if it doesn't get the energy it needs. So first I'll talk about mitochondria and the brain in general. Then I'll talk about psychiatric disorders in mitochondrial diseases and the evidence for that. And then I'll talk a little bit about really what brought me to this whole area, which is mitochondrial dysregulation in psychiatric disorders. Next slide, which is number three. Uh, there's a brain and our brains are nothing short of miraculous feats of engineering. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of watts to be able to make a brain work, which is an incredible thing given 
how much energy it, it does use and what it, it does um, what it does. But the amazing thing is that our brains take up somewhere between 20% and 25% of our total body energy. It is very hungry. It is very selfish. And all the other systems I would contend as a psychiatrist exist to support our brains. So here you have something that, that's hungry and energy intensive, where the metabolism that's going on is absolutely essential. And it is organized in ways that we are just starting to begin to understand. Next. This is actually a, a picture of advanced neuroimaging that shows different tracks. And it looks like our brains are really organized in sheets uh, and they're sheets of all sorts of complex cells that communicate with each other to form very complex networks. And I'll keep coming back to this theme, but it takes a lot of energy to maintain these networks, to do everything that the networks have to do, to do all of the things that the neurons have to do because they are also quite hungry. Next slide, slide five. And this just shows a, a way of measuring energy uh, that the highest metabolic rates that are in brains really have to do with higher thinking, just as that might make intuitive sense to somebody. It takes an enormous amount of energy. If you, if you think about a computer, they get very hot. Uh, some brains get hotter than others, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. But, but it, it's uh, to be able to have the computing power that we do, that also, I, I wake up in the morning, I'm amazed my brain is still working. And uh, it's amazing that it works at all. So it takes energy. And for all of you, as I'll tell you later, and you're familiar with this, takes mitochondria to make that energy available. Next. So in this extraordinary book by Olaf Sporns called Networks and the Brain, uh, Olaf Sporns talks about how our brains are functionally organized. Now, this is not a technical book, but it is a challenging read. And I would urge if anybody who would be willing to slog through a challenging book, uh, this can change the way that you understand how your brain works. And, and it also has beautiful pictures. It, it's really very well done. Uh, but, 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 you know, it's, it's not light reading, but I think it's readable. It's just dense uh, and uh, it, it, it's extraordinary. It really talks about how our brains really are organized into complex networks. The networks are dynamic. The networks change all the time. Next slide, number seven. And there is something called a default mode network, which is the way that our brains organize when we're at rest. And what's extraordinary about it is that the network forms, different areas of your brain communicate with each other when you are doing nothing. And it takes up an enormous amount of energy to be able to sustain that network and the network in that brain, in our brains, that are, that's active when we're at rest is exactly the same anatomical areas where we develop the problems associated with Alzheimer's. 
So the implication is that you can have a dysregulation of energy and then you have neuronal damage. And at least for Alzheimer's, uh, that, that occurs in the same areas as the default mode network. But it's also been implicated, as many of you may know, in Parkinson's disease, in Huntington's disease, and in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease. Next slide, number eight. Uh, there's all sorts of, again, ways that our brains to organize, and there's, there's a way to look at how our brains are functioning and what we're actually doing. And this was a, a, an incredible study that looked at what brain areas are active that are, is a, that are associated with our will to persevere given obstacles. And for many of you who may have loved ones with mitochondrial disorders, or loved ones with psychiatric disorders, or with both, the will to persevere given an obstacle sometimes is very tough. And people may give up, and it may not be just a matter of will, it may be a matter of how their brains are actually working. Next, number nine. You're all familiar with mitochondria. I am not going to bore you with this. Next one, you also know about the electron transport chain. I'm not gonna belabor that. Uh, I just do want to say that that the mito architecture in terms of the electron transport chain is also nothing less than a miraculous feat of microengineering. I mean, the machinery is exquisite and unbelievable. It's not surprising that things can go wrong with these things. Uh, what I just want to have you pay attention to is actually complex one. Uh, because it looks like in several psychiatric disorders, there's dysregulation within complex one. Next, the mitogenome, as you all know, is very complicated, and MTND1 also is an area that's been implicated for psychiatric disorders. I'll tell you about that later. Again, I'm not going to uh, belabor the mitochondrial energy pathway. Let's go to the next one. I'm not going to belabor this. But I do want to emphasize that mitochondria are essential for what's called neuronal plasticity. Our neurons change, grow, move, and have connections that form and unform. And all of those things take energy. There are new neurons that are being formed in our heads as adults. Uh, that, that are formed from neuronal stem cells. That's called neurogenesis. There are new dendrites, which are the branches that form, that make new connections. That's dendritogenesis. And there are synaptomes, that, synapses that form and break, uh, but the forming is synaptogenesis. It all costs you money. It costs the brain money. It costs the brain energy. There's also cell survival of which cells uh, will survive and which ones will die by program. This is, this is actually, you don't have death of cells, you have all sorts of problems. And, and the uh, fancy name for cell death is apoptosis. So it also takes care of that. Next, please. Uh, I'm gonna skip this one. Um, I'm gonna skip oxidative stress because many of you know about that. I'm gonna uh, skip number 17, skip number 18. And let's now get to the heart of the, the two things that I want to be able to cover in our brief time together. 
there were several people at the beginning of the call who really talked about their loved ones with mitochondrial disorders who also have mood disorders. And um, I would contend that many of the mood disorders actually are not mood disorders. They're actually energy disorders. And, and I'll show you what I mean by that later. But it's not a surprise that if you have a mitochondrial disorder, that your brain will not function as well as it might. And that's because the type of energy that the brain can use can be limited if you don't have this, this exquisitely fine-tuned energy delivery system to where it needs to be. Next, please. So first, let's talk about the lifetime prevalence of psychiatric disorders in people who have mitochondrial disease. It's been estimated that 50% of children with mitochondrial disorders will have depression and that 70% of adults uh, will have some major psychiatric disorder at some time. The onset of psychiatric disorders can average 13 years before the diagnosis of mito disease in adults, particularly. And some of these psychiatric disorders can be resistant, cannot respond as well as one would hope to some psychiatric medications because there are some psychiatric medications that may actually interfere with mitochondrial function. Next. So what are the, what's the full spectrum of psychiatric presentations that you might see with people who have mitochondrial disorders? Well, I already mentioned major depressive disorder, Someone on the phone at the beginning mentioned bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, anorexia, uh, orexia, bizarre hallucinations, anxiety, substance abuse, and what's called borderline personality disorder and also catatonia. The thing about these manifestations, the thing about psychiatric presentations, is that the thing that unites all of these manifestations is the concept of dysregulation. And for those of us who are not burdened with mitochondrial disorders or psychiatric disorders, we take it for granted. We don't even know that we can regulate everything without having to think about it necessarily. Our sleep is regulated, our eating is regulated, our mood is regulated, our energy is regulated, our thoughts are regulated, the way we process thoughts is regulated, the way we take care of stress is regulated, uh, the, the way that we were able to plan, think, execute actions. Uh, it's, all, it's all because you can regulate things. And if you don't have the way to regulate the energy associated with those things, these are the sort of problems that you can have. Next. Uh, this, this just talks about the actual uh, incidence of psychiatric symptoms that people can have, not necessarily disorders, um, and uh, it, it just has a full range of things. The, the thing I do want to emphasize is right in the middle, it says hostility, and it goes back to the notion of regulation that if one becomes irritated, if one becomes angry, if one is frustrated, it's difficult to regulate that if you don't have the machinery to do it. 
and I think it's one of the challenges that people can have if they have mitochondrial problems. Next, number 23. So Anglin and colleagues looked at 47 reported cases, looked at depression with psychotic features. They, they looked in the literature and they found 47 cases that were reported. They found depression with psychotic features. Psychotic features are either hallucinations or delusions, believing something is real that can't be real. Uh, the same is with psychosis itself. So you can have hallucinations or delusions without depression. You can have cognitive deterioration, the inability to process information, uh, the inability to remember things, uh, be able to store memories, to be able to uh, recall memories uh, and, and to sort through them. You can also have a dysregulation of anxiety Again, there's bipolar disorder, which is a, a full dysregulation of mood and energy. And you can have something called the frontal lobe syndrome, where people are impulsive and essentially also can't really plan things. Uh, there's also a problem with memory. Next, number 24. The physical manifestations that, that uh, were associated with these 47 cases, with the things that you would usually see with mitochondrial disorders, including migraine or headache, um, hearing loss, uh, type 2 diabetes, and, and some other things that many of you may be familiar with. Next, number 25. Now, functional MRI will show the areas of the brain that are involved. And uh, in the case series by Anglin and colleagues, uh, they found that there were white matter lesions in these people. There was atrophy. There was evidence of an ischemia uh, or an old infarct also. And also the area of the brain that's associated with not only movement, but is being increasingly appreciated as one of the structures that also helps re regulate mood is basal ganglia, and you can have problems there. Next on 26, uh, the neurological findings that you can find are, again, white matter deterioration and this underlying defect in the respiratory chain, electron transport chain that you know about, and oxidative stress. And again, the, the, the problem is neurons, brains, hungry for energy, and you can have neuronal death if they don't get enough energy. Uh, you also can replace one set of cells with another set of cells, and, and that becomes also a functional problem. Next, number 27, the mutations associated with some of the psychiatric disorders are familiar to many of you between MELAS, MRF, CPO, MNGII, but there was no clear genotype psychiatric phenotype relationship. So the type of genetic problem that you might have with MITO may not necessarily tell you what's associated with psychiatrically uh, in terms of the psychiatric manifestations. And in part, it's because the broad brain implications of the mitochondrial problem, again, it can be varied depending on where, where the energy is needed. Uh, the other manifestations, next slide, uh, across many of the things that many of you are familiar with, I won't belabor that. Next slide, number 29. And here's, here's the clinical problem, is that people can have a deterioration with the medications that are supposed to help. And remember, I talked about complex one. Uh, and complex one will come up again when I talk about psychiatric problems. 
uh, or, or it, you know, the mitochondrial problems you see in psychiatric disorders. Uh, and, and it seems to be one of the places where if people use the newer antipsychotics, you can impair complex one. And if you do that, people can get worse. You can also have problems with SSRIs and with tricyclic antidepressants, and that can make things a little bit worse. Now, I, I just want to uh, stay on this slide for the moment, but I'm going to skip ahead and link this to some of the psychiatric problems because in bipolar disorder, complex one has been implicated as a problem. And tricyclic antidepressants will actually make bipolar patients worse. And if anything, for most patients who take SSRIs like Prozac and, and that whole family, uh, that also doesn't work very well. And believe it or not, if it's added to a mood stabilizer, placebo works a little bit better. So, so this is kind of consistent with what we see clinically for at least bipolar disorder. Uh, also, valproic acid that is used as a mood stabilizer, it's an anticonvulsant, can induce a carnitine deficiency and also not particularly help. So here you have somebody who has mitochondrial problems, psychiatric manifestations. They try to take some of the medications that are supposed to help. They make people worse uh, sometimes. And so the, the treatment for the psychiatric problems that can co-occur or be part of the constellation of problems with mitochondrial disorders turn out to be a list that you're very familiar with if you've been in the mito world. And what's remarkable is that these are starting to be used in the psychiatric world. Uh, so th th there's this um, dovetailing be between the two. Now, the evidence for any of these working, as I'm sure many of you are familiar with, is limited at best, uh, that people use all sorts of cocktails of these things and they put them together and they try to do the best they can with what they know to see if you can get some sort of, of traction with helping of this. But it's the last thing where if you see your loved one getting a psychiatric medication and getting worse, You've got to be able to tell the doctor that and tell them that's what you're noticing, that's what you're seeing, and that if anything, you should really try to reduce or discontinue those drugs if they're not working. Now, some of them may in fact work fine, and that's a whole nother story, but, but it's all about being able to be the eyes and the ears for your loved one and be able to negotiate with your doctor about that. Next. Let's talk about the other side of the coin, and that's what may be surprising to many of you, is the growing evidence about mitochondrial dysregulation in psychiatric disorders. Uh, some of you may have seen that, that this week, one of the most uh, often emailed New York Times articles had to do with exercise and depression and finding a link. Now, in some ways, that report is, is quite good, um, but, but they really don't talk about the link between exercise and mitochondrial function. Um, and, and they, they kind of miss the point with some of that. But, but uh, it's one of the things also that people are starting to look at. Um, next, please. So um, this really amazing researcher, the last one on this list, uh, Tadafumi Kato, 
started this in in the eighties and started to see that there were mitochondrial problems in the genome with people with bipolar disorder. Now, since he reported these sort of things, it, it's been much more complicated, and, and there's some evidence for it and some not, but, uh, but it looks like it's a story that's starting to hold. Next, please. And then uh, Trevor Young up in Canada also started to look at mitochondrial elect electron transport chain that's abnormal, and his work has continued to, uh, uh, to grow especially with his, his his brilliant young colleague, Ana Andreaza, who uh, has an Italian name but is really from Brazil and now is up in Canada. And Ana Andreaza has really uh, looked at the, uh, the electron transport chain in, in terms of complex one as being a problem there. Next, it, it just to emphasize that, that people are looking at the mitochondrial genes just want you to look at the second box. There's NDUFSA. That's one of the things that's associated with uh, with complex one. Um, and the first of the third box, NDUFS7. You know, you start to see this this pattern that that's occurring. Next, so the downregulated genes that are starting to be seen with bipolar disorder: complex one, complex three, complex four, and even complex. Next, please. And, and here is even more recent data um, having to do with, look at that middle, the MTND1, again, associated with complex one. It looks like the, the genes for bipolar disorder here, it's, it's uh, dysregulated. In sharp contrast to the next slide, number 37, you don't see that in major depressive disorder. Number 38, you don't see that in schizophrenia. Next. Uh, so. Um, I'm going to skip this one, go to number 40, right? So here's the, the evidence for the mitochondrial abnormalities, at least in bipolar disorder. You have altered mitochondrial gene expression. That's, that's which genes get turned on and turned off. There's evidence for decreased brain energy metabolism, which I didn't show you, but I'll ask you to take my word for it. There's altered calcium metabolism, which is central to mitochondrial function. There's dysregulated calcium channel genes that's associated with that calcium metabolism, and there are problems with oxidative stress uh, that that uh, that occur in bipolar disorder, and that is actually mitigated or improved with some of the basic treatments for bipolar disorder, including lithium and valproate. Next slide, number 41. And some of the reports go on and on to, to start to, to show this. So a decade ago, a key paper by uh, Christine Conradi and my colleagues who were then at McLean Hospital looked at some of the molecular evidence for this. Next, this just shows the genes that are upregulated or downregulated by color. We won't go through the details of that. Next, um, having to do with, with energy metabolism, these are the the chemical pathways for that next number 44 then people would look at blood and look at the lymphocytes and they would see that there was an abnormality in the electron transport gene expression next number 45 and this also shows things that are upregulated and downregulated by color we're not going to go through details next number 46 uh, and then my colleagues and i even looked at the gene expression in 
in the genes having to do with who responds to lithium and who doesn't next. And we looked at a whole bunch of things, number 47, um, and next, number 48. It turned out that some of these things were directly related to mitochondrial gene expression and mitochondrial function. Again, I, I won't go through the details of that. Number 49. And then people actually looked at abnormal cellular energy that occurs in bipolar disorder. Number 50, again, going back to the chemical cycles, it looks at that. 51, it just makes it bigger. <laughs> Number 52. So they looked with magnetic resonance spectroscopy at the prefrontal cortex, number 53, and they use something called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, where in a living person, you can actually evaluate the concentration of relevant um, uh, materials that have to do with brain energy metabolism. And the basic, the basic thing is that, uh, that they found that there were problems related to the energy-related metabolites. Number 54 just shows that also in a different way. Number 55 shows it in another way. Number 56, they come up with, a, with how this is occurring in the large network within the cell. Uh, again, I don't want to go through details of that. Number 57, they also looked at peripheral markers of stress. And here are the various things that can be a, a uh, oxidative stress associated with bipolar disorder. Number 59 just shows one of them, uh, 50, uh, number 60, another one, uh, 61, another one, and 62, another one. Uh, and they, they looked carefully at all the literature and found there were some of these markers that were abnormal in bipolar disorder. Next, 64, I mentioned calcium channel genes. All I want to really want to say about that is that people worldwide have been trying to understand the genetic basis of bipolar disorder because it's heritable. It is more heritable than breast cancer. And because it's so heritable, people are trying to find the genes. And the one gene that keeps on coming up has to do with calcium. And calcium is central to energy metabolism and and mitochondrial function. So on the next one, 65, it just shows a picture of that. Again, it won't go through details. Number 66, another one. Um, and number 67, just more, more details about it. So the question is, can bipolar relapse be decreased by modulating mitochondria? So can you give somebody something that would help somebody with bipolar disorder do better over time and the modulators uh, that are possibly helpful well, start to look like some of the things used in Mitoland. And, uh, you know, is there evidence for some of this helping with bipolar disorder in people who don't have a clear mitochondrial problem? Well, maybe if you go to number 70, again, there's the electron transport chain focusing on number one. Complex one is so important here. And so there's this, um, there's this mitochondrial modulator called N-acetylcysteine or NAC. And NAC, is, it turns out, has many different effects. But it is a very importantly a precursor uh, to something called glutathione, which is the most important antioxidant that our brain makes. And so if you eat a lot of 
N-acetylcysteine, and you have to take a lot of it, like two grams a day, enough will cross the blood-brain barrier that you'll increase the glutathione in your brain. But the real question is, does this do anything? Next, um, skip that one, skip 73, uh, skip 74. And then if you go to, to number 75, my good colleague Michael Burke down in Australia added NAC or placebo to people with bipolar disorder doing fairly well. And if you look at the solid line, what happened is there was no difference between placebo and NAC until about the 12th, the 12th week, or 16th week or so, and then they separate out. And what this basically shows is that the NAC prevented depression. Then was, when it was stopped at the very end of the 24th week, they lost the benefit. And my good colleague thinks that NAC is worth studying to see if it changes the course of bipolar disorder by modulating mitochondria. Um, number 76, it's just that acetyl L-carnitine might be helpful, worthy of study. Number 77 just talks about some of the details. We won't go through that. Same with 78. Number 79, alpha-lipoic acid, again, familiar to some of you. Question is, can it help with bipolar disorder? We don't know. Um, so in, in summary, what I've tried to take you through is that there is a reason that some of your loved ones may have psychiatric symptoms and psychiatric disorders if they have mitochondrial disorders because your brain needs constant energy. And if you dysregulate that, you'll regulate, you'll dysregulate how people can regulate all sorts of things associated with brain function. The other side of it is that there are psychiatric disorders that don't necessarily have a clear mitochondrial gene problem, but seem to have a dysregulation in energy. And it may not be a mitochondriopathy, but it may be a mitochondrial dysregulation enough that you get some of the psychiatric problems. So let me end there and, um, and bring it back to Christy. Great. Uh, Dr. Nirenberg, this was really interesting, and you certainly covered a lot of ground in a brief amount of time. And, I, and we do have some questions coming in through email, and then I'll open up the uh, calls and we'll take some questions from our listeners as well. Um, so one interesting um, thing to perhaps speculate about and, and wonder if you would give comment is the relationship of illness to an onset of psychiatric symptoms. Um, for example, there are a number of patients in our mitochondrial disease community who have a existing co-diagnosis of PANS or PANDAS, which is pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, syndrome and, and PANDAS is associated with strep. But in particular, what's interesting about that is that it's related to an illness, which as we know for mitochondrial patients, then an illness often causes a cascade of um, metabolic and energy symptoms that can take a long time to, um, you know, reestablish a baseline. So is there ever been an association with illness with an onset of psychiatric symptoms, a flare, if you will, of, in, of these mood disorders related to illness? So actually, PANDAS is famously associated with the onset of uh, associated obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, uh, kids with PANDAS have a big problem with developing 
um, OCD uh, syndromes and symptoms. So uh, there, there's also some speculation about um, exposure to viruses in, v, in, uh, in utero with uh, uh, an association with some of the psychiatric problems that, that people end up having. So th there, are, there are multiple ways to have problems. You know, the, it's like there are only a few ways to be happy and there are multiple ways to not. So, so that, that uh, because our brains are so exquisite and delicate, th there are so many ways that you can insult your brain and having the, an onset of another illness can, can happen. Uh, there's a lot of attention paid these, these days, by the way, on, on traumatic brain injury and the psychiatric manifestations of that. So that's a good example of having a clear physical insult and then having a psychiatric problem. Interesting. Great. Thank you. And uh, one more question that's come in um, over email. Uh, wondering if you would uh, comment at all about... Uh, impact of sleep disorders, insomnia, and so forth. Do you have any knowledge to share with our community about that and that being an energy metabolism issue? So uh, uh, sleep is a, a great mystery to me. Um, like many of you, I, I uh, lie down on a bed at night and uh, I fall asleep. And how does that happen? And, and then uh, some hours later, uh, I wake up. And how does that happen? Uh, how do you go in and out of these states and what's going on while you're sleeping? Well, it turns out that, that it's really important to brain health to have sleep. And that if you want to increase one's uh, probability of getting Alzheimer's, then be sleep deprived all the time because it's really bad for your brain. So, uh, so a lot of activity is going on when you're sleeping. There's a lot of repair that's going on, um, and um, it, it really is. It also takes a lot of energy to do that. But um, to have a regular sleep schedule turns out to be essential for psychiatric disorders, and as much as possible uh, for also other medical disorders. So. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say is that, that sleep has also been implicated in metabolic disorders and that there's an association between insomnia and obesity. And it's worth, um, it's worth mentioning for, I think, the MITO community that, um, you know, it is often very challenging for MITO patients to find periods of restorative sleep and rest because of the persistent fatigue or sometimes because the things that mitopatients use, such as coenzyme Q10, to help them boost their energy metabolism actually can consequently make it more difficult to sleep. But it's really important, and what you're saying just um, justifies this, to weave periods of restoration and rest in throughout the day, particularly if a long period of sleep is really problematic for the patient, that you know one of the main things that we can do before we do anything else in the clinic is we can just step back and and at home we can really address are we getting good rest and and what can we do to change that environment or change the schedule so that that patient really has the opportunity to have 
the rest that's really necessary. And it sounds like, you know, again, you think of these very energy-hungry organs. They need that. And, and, and one comment is one of the best things that you you can do two things that will help with sleep. Um, and, and it may be challenging in this population, but exercise is actually good. Uh, that can help with sleep. But but the, the if you had to do one thing to help with sleep, you limit exposure to screens uh, at, at night. And, and uh, you will limit the exposure to the blue light that's associated with that. Uh, and that can help tremendously. Great. I'm going to unmute the line so that we can um, take some questions from our callers. If you're listening, uh, we'll just take our questions, you know, one at a time, virtual classroom style, and uh, I'll remind you to keep your questions as as brief as you possibly can uh, so that, number one, the call is being recorded. You wouldn't want to give any personal history. And number two, for the sake of time, so we can address several questions. I'll also ask you to use star six right now to go ahead and mute your phone if you're in an area that is not quiet at all, background noise, other people, or if you're on a cell phone. That will just help us when we open up the lines for questions. So Dr. Nirenberg, bear with me, and we'll take some lines, take some questions um, from those who are calling in. I have something a little okay, so, um, so, so bear with me one second. We'll just call on folks one at a time, and, um, and we'll have a question. So... Um, so I and I have a few of you who've emailed about asking a question as well, so I'll call on you as well. So uh, I have a question from um, uh, from Flora. Flora, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, go ahead and ask your question. Um, I was wondering about um, the calcium sequestration that you um, showed on slide 18 for people who have a family history of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And you know, suspected mito dysfunction. Um, do you have you heard of? Uh, we're just uh, wondering about approaching a doctor, you know, before the onset of symptoms. Um, you know, for someone in their 40s uh, who, you know, we've just heard of it that that um, some people are using, um, I guess, uh, heart uh, medication, which is calcium blockers, but not. Not my um, Vidalia. So, so, um, so if I if I understand the question, you're asking if the uh, uh, some of the calcium medications might be helpful. Uh, I actually don't know. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thanks for the honest answer, <laughs> the honest question. Uh, okay. Question that came in that I'm going to ask um, from a caller is: Is there a mitochondrial dysfunction link? to um, the psychiatric disorder known as somatoform or conversion disorder? Uh, I don't know, and I don't recall uh, seeing anything on that, but that just may reflect my ignorance. Okay, and another question that has come in that I'll ask, and then I'll call on um, James or Antoinette Bunce to ask a question, but first I'm going to ask on the behalf of a physician who is calling. Uh, common cardiovascular medicines such as statins and beta blockers um, affecting depression or brain energetics. Any thoughts about that? So there's a very complicated story with statins, and um, the, the 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 bottom line is that statins are actually neuroprotective. Uh, that that, that uh, there are several studies that have tried to look at the combination of statins 
and SSRIs, uh, the, the Prozac-like drugs, and they may actually be synergistic. They may work better together, although it's a very complicated story, and, and um, uh, probably in the long run it's helpful uh, and probably not harmful. Uh, uh, that's what I know the most about, so that's what I'll comment on. Great. Thank you. And uh, Antoinette, are you there? Would you like to ask your question? Okay, she may be muted. So, Antoinette, are you there? Okay, she may be muted, so I'll ask the question for her. Um, she was asking about um, your, um, your experience with the crossover between autism with symptoms of psychosis and... Um, mitochondrial disease you know i think that this is a good question because there's um often a struggle in the mitochondrial disease community is what's mito and what's autism and uh and and would the cocktail help those features of autism and psychosis um comment about that well you know look the the, the common area between between um uh those two things is really the brain and, and how the brain is working. So uh, I go back to my contention that there are a lot of ways that our brains can go wrong, um, and that a lot of people, uh, both kids and adults who have an autism spectrum, have psychiatric problems beyond the autism. Um, I, I have an excellent colleague here, uh, Joshi Gogan, who has um, dedicated his career to trying to help those people. So. Uh, it's not surprising that, that you can have both. Agreed. And I guess I would additionally comment that um, it's been my experience in working with parents of children who have that crossover between uh, diagnosis of a mitochondrial dysfunction and autism or on the spectrum that the cocktail is helpful. Um, but it doesn't mean that you could apply the cocktail across the board to all children who have features of autism because there is that cohort that has a mitochondrial component, from what I understand. Am I still muted? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. We can hear you. Yes. My question is, is, we've been told that since her autism, in this case, disappeared pretty much completely with the mitochondrial cocktails, was prescribed by our mitochondrial disease doctors, we're being told that this wasn't a true autism. Is Was it or was it not? She was diagnosed with a dsm 4 diagnosis of moderately severe autism, and um, five years later, she's not showing signs of it at all. And we're wondering, was that a misdiagnosis, or were we, or were we fortunate that all these things in the mitochondrial cocktail helped her? Um, there's one thing in the DSM, and the thing in the DSM is that if you have a psychiatric disorder that's secondary to a medical disorder, that's different than just having the psychiatric disorder. And from what you said, it sounds like it's, you know, there's a clear link between the two. And so if that goes away, that's, that was secondary to the mitochondrial disorder. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Nuremberg. I have another question that's come in from... Uh, email uh, asking about the relationship between seizures and onset of um, psychiatric disorders or psychiatric symptoms. 
So, so there are there are people who have seizures without psychiatric problems. There are people who have seizures with psychiatric problems, and there are people with psychiatric problems who don't have any problems with seizures. So, uh, so it's a complex relationship, and it really depends what the source of the seizures are, what the sources are. So it depends what you know where in the brain is that starting. And that that people will have different psychiatric manifestations depending on that. So so that's why it really has to do with a neuroanatomical explanation. Hello. Interesting. Great. Thank you. And I have another question that's come in over email for Dr. Nirenberg, uh, talking about a specific genetic defect um, that was recently found. Uh, I'll say what it is in case it means something to you, Dr. Nirenberg, CACNA1A, um, and an mtDNA ND1 defect that was discovered. Um, if you, I guess the first part of the question is, um, is that meaningful in terms of the presentation of psychiatric symptoms in your um, knowledge? And then the second question is um, about N-acetylcysteine, NAC, if that would be better taken orally or by IV if um, a patient already had IV access? So CAC1NAC, which is affectionately called CACNAC, uh, codes for the alpha-2 subunit of the L-type calcium channel. And that is the most frequent uh, uh, genetic finding in bipolar disorder. So, um, and again, that, that's what I was talking about earlier, about one of the most common findings. Uh, the other one has to do with coding for one of the subunits in uh, the first part of the electron right. transport chain. Very um, interesting. And and how about your thoughts on the NAC um, IV access versus you know if access is already available versus orally? Um, Eleven point zero. I I don't I don't I don't know enough about the pharmacokinetics of oral versus uh, IV uh, administration. Uh, so I, I, I don't know the, the benefits of one versus the other. Um, I just know you have to take a lot of it to get into your brain. Um, and, and by the way, NAC has been shown in proof of concept clinical trials to uh, uh, compared to placebo to be useful for gambling, uh, for nail nail biting, for nose picking, for hair pulling, for um, and for gambling. Oh, also for marijuana and cocaine. Thank you, Dr. N, for answering my question. Sure. Could I ask okay, uh, a Dr. more Excuse me one second. second. So, hold, on, hold on one second. We'll take them one at a time. So, um, Dr. Nirenberg, how are you doing on time? Do we need to... We have a couple more minutes. I have three more minutes. Okay, we have three more minutes. So some of you have sent me questions, and if I can answer your question, I'm going to respond to you um, because I know that we have a lot of people who have questions. And then also, if you would like to email your questions, I'll compile those and let Dr. Nirenberg and I have a chat, and I can get back to you with answers too. So please know that we'll do our best to actually answer um, your questions. Um, this is an important question. Let's just talk about this for a second because you mentioned this, uh, Dr. Nirenberg. Um, for for patients with meds, you talked about how there are some meds to avoid um, during the presentation because they can have a, a negative impact. 
particularly on complex one um, or other parts of the tra transport chain, but what works then? Any recommendations? So, so, so let, let me be. Let me make sure that I'm clear. Uh, I, I wasn't saying to avoid those. I was saying that if somebody gets worse on them, you know, you should know that you should be able to observe that. In fact, some people make it better. So it's highly variable. It's not necessarily something you should always avoid those. Um, the the uh, uh, some of the ones that you know, depending on what's going on, lithium is neuroprotective in, in fundamental ways that might be helpful, and and then some of these other sort of non-conventional things may be helpful. And again, I'm I'm not recommending this, but there is some evidence that. Some of the things that are being used for some of the neurodegenerative diseases uh, may be helpful. So some people are starting to look at an old class of anti-cholesterol drugs called the fibrates. Some people are looking at repurposing some of the anti-diabetic drugs called glitazones. Other people are looking at things like, believe it or not, the antibiotic minocycline that, that can be helpful. Uh, so that, in addition to the us usual things that people are using as the mitochondrial mo uh, cocktail, may be of help. Wonderful. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Nirenberg, I'm going to um, stop here so that we can take a moment to thank you and uh, and just make a general comment that your presentation today was really important. And part of the reason why it was important was because of the information that you provided, but it was also important because um, for many years – particularly the adult mitochondrial disease patients, were dismissed as um, having these symptoms that were related to them situationally being depressed or over-exaggerating their symptoms or, um, you know, making it up or, or you know, some other um, more dismissive process was given to these patients and uh, and maybe before mitochondrial disease was really interpreted as having a relationship to these psychiatric and mood disorders. So it's really important to uh, educate ourselves as a community and to educate the providers who care for these patients about that very interesting relationship and about altered brain energy metabolism and what that means. So, Dr. Nirenberg, you've, you've done a wonderful job today. Any closing comments for the group? Um, I, I think the main thing is, is to realize that uh, – we're usually not aware that we have brains and we usually take it for granted. And that, that uh, you have to be careful about um, accepting pure psychological explanations for someone's state. Uh, usually it's both. And that, that uh, if you don't have the machinery to do everything that it needs to do, again, you can have all sorts of behavioral and psychiatric manifestations of what's going on. But uh, thank you for the, the opportunity and the honor of being able to present to the group. Everyone, please join me in telling Dr. Nirenberg thank you because he, uh, he did such a wonderful job. And thank you for contributing and donating your time today, Dr. Nirenberg. We hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of the weekend and uh, look forward to uh, the opportunity to see you again. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And, uh, Thank you both so much. Please, Thank you so much. Please don't hesitate to email me with questions. Um, I won't have an answer to them right away, but I will compile them and follow up with Dr. Nirenberg and do our best to help. And if the questions um, are such that they could be shared, I'll also post them 
on the MitoAction website in a very general way um, with an answer on that page that you found the slides today uh, on mitoaction.org under psychiatric disorders and mitochondrial diseases. Um, let me just give you a heads up about the call next month uh, for the month of November. We'll be um, welcoming Dr. Peter Stackpole from the University of Florida to join us on November 7th, and he'll be talking about pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency, um, which is a type of mitochondrial disease. He'll be talking specifically about that. He'll be talking about what is pyruvate and how does it play a role in mitochondrial disorders, and he'll also be talking about DCA, which is dichloroacetate, which has um, been studied for a number of years to um, treat this condition, and he'll be talking about some of the research associated with that. So if you subscribe to MitoAction's email, then that's the best way to stay tuned to these things. I'll send you an email and keep you up to date. Um, but everyone, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, understand we didn't get to all of the questions, but please feel free to email me, and I hope that you found this as helpful uh, as I did. Everybody, thanks again for your support, and have a great, great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.